Hey everyone, um, I am super excited to be here with Dan Palkin, who uh, works with the Citizens Climate Lobby. And I'm really excited because when Dan reached out to me, you know, I think we believe in the same thing, and that's having a really effective conversation about climate change that's really positive and inspiring and gives people a, you know, something something to work with and especially when with such a politicized issue now you know how do we come together on on something that gives people so much anxiety and fear and and how do we kind of come together to actually create solutions for a problem so i think that was really exciting when when dan reached out to me so dan welcome to the podcast ah well thank you sarah i'm really glad to be on uh and looking forward to the conversation yeah so i know that you know, we've talked briefly about your background and you kind of started in the academia world and now you're working out in Colorado. So thank you for, um, you know, for being here. You traveled so far <laughs> to be here today. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Those um, red eyes. <laughs> so why don't you um, kind of give a little introduction to, to kind of how you got to where you are and, and how you found the podcast even. Yeah. Um, so I am an experimental physics graduate student, uh, oh, okay. quite close to the end of my, my uh, PhD. Um, and I also work as a conservative outreach fellow for the Citizens Climate Lobby. Um, and how I got to that point was I was in graduate school um, looking for dark matter, uh, which for listeners that don't know what dark matter is, don't worry, physicists don't either. Um, <laughs> but we're trying to uh, we're trying to figure out, and it's 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 going, um, it's going. But you know, it, it occurred to me that this was a this was a problem that, um, though very intellectually rich and fascinating, was not addressing things that the world needed addressed um, at a time when I felt that the world uh, kind of acutely needed things addressed. It was kind of the politics of my early grad school years, and just observing them and, and not having a story I could tell myself about my work having any meaning on, you know, anything tangible that we might, that we might hope to get use out of in the next few centuries to millennia. Um, and so a friend uh, talked me into joining a group called the Citizens Climate Lobby. Um, and I got really passionate about uh, uh, kind of working from where I was on the political spectrum, which is not always as far left as you think of uh, climate volunteers being, but working towards really productive solutions that can draw down emissions rapidly um, in an effective way. And how I found out about the podcast um, was, so, uh, you know, this is rapidly changing in Citizens Climate Lobby, but one of, you know, the organization has been around for, for a bit over a decade. And kind of before the kind of current youth wave entered the climate movement, um, Citizens Climate Lobby was mostly people of older generations. Um, and now there's a, a newer influx of us and we've been bringing ideas like, well, where can we really outreach that reaches our generation? And so my first thought was podcasts because I, I obsessively listen to podcasts. It's how I get all my news and information. It's how I know what time it is and what day it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe I'm exaggerating. No. What to um, eat. What to eat. Yeah, I don't know what I would do. Mm -hmm. um, it'd be hard. Uh, and so I, I, I started looking for climate podcasts that were delivering a productive uh, and hopeful message on this where that would mesh with CCL's message and yours was one that came up fairly quickly. Um, and uh, here know. we are. 
my SEO is working. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, that's great. That's awesome. And I think that it's funny that you say that because so many people that reach out to me say the same thing. Like, I don't know if there's just not a lot of sustainability podcasts out there. Um, But I also love podcasts. And I think what's interesting about the podcast world as well is it just feels more real and more authentic. And so I think that this is the right medium for talking to millennials. And, uh, and that's sort of what I found when I was like, how do I want to have a conversation with young people and with people that are just working in a regular job about not just climate change, but how people are making a difference and, and kind of your story of, and you're not the first person I know who is getting their PhD and was like, this PhD program seems it's so long. Like we have to, you have to, it takes seven years. And then, and then you kind of write this paper that, you know, who's going to see it. It's got to be amazing. Otherwise like the science, I mean, not all of us can be interns at NASA and like find a planet on our second day of work. There was a, a friend of mine in, in the physics department. He went to Yale. So in Connecticut where you are, uh, where we both are, because I of course flew out there for this podcast that we're still nonetheless doing. By obviously. Um, obviously. And uh, it's the sustainable thing to do. Uh, and and his, on his, there, there were rules for his thesis committee. And obviously this rule as written wasn't meant to be interpreted quite so literally, but he actually, uh, I found this quote really funny. It was in kind of the Yale rules for physics theses. It said, the thesis must be read by no more than five and no less than three people. Um, and that's, that sounds about right uh, for an <laughs> academic thesis. Um, so yeah, I wanted my work to kind of uh, have an impact beyond even the, the kind of high watermark of five people. Um, so. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, that's, it's interesting. And so I think what happens a lot in academia because even I was toying with my idea with an idea of trying to get my PhD because I do love research and I find that there's not enough like sustainability, especially corporate program research. Just there's just not enough out there. Not enough people are getting PhDs in this. I guess where are you actually from originally? Because now you're in probably one of the most progressive areas of the country. Yeah, so actually, that's an interesting. So I'm from Massachusetts, which was also uh, kind of I grew up in a in a very liberal setting. Went to college in Maine, uh, Bowdoin College, which uh, I really enjoyed. Um, I just loved the coast and kind of being out in nature there. Colorado and Boulder, yeah, uh, is kind of like a little. Uh, it's kind of like a a bit of Massachusetts, but it's surrounded by areas which are more, I would say, kind of representative of where a lot of the country is. And so it provides opportunities to kind of go talk to, to kind of more normal people uh, than you might necessarily <laughs> find in Boulder. You know, the people in Boulder are perfectly fine and nice, um, but there's a, there's a big world out there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's a little, it's, it's interesting being able to drive not far and having the political landscape uh, change a lot. My, like, when I first moved to New York, I had a friend group where almost all of that, all the girls went to University of Colorado Boulder and mm. were from what, Fort Collins and like from Boulder. I uh, know like a good amount about the area and it's beautiful. I hear that people yeah. just carry around their mason jars and, <laughs> you know, go hiking every day. Like it sounds like an ideal society. 
Yeah, it's 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 really quite. I actually funny you say mason jars. I had a friend that uh, I go backpacking and and or I go hiking with her in the mountains, and we always she she like started bringing food in mason jars, and I was like, aren't those going to shatter? But apparently the answer is no. Like you can just mm. bring like we would bring fresh blueberries and uh, bell peppers, and uh, you can really do well by yourself <laughs> in the mountains yeah. in Colorado with just a few mason jars in the in the supermarket. That's awesome. And how did you? When you're at Bowdoin, how did you figure out that physics was kind of what you were interested in and that you wanted to study it? So, I mean, Bowdoin really did a good job, like, encouraging kind of uh, spreading oneself intellectually and looking around early in, in one's kind of academic mm-hmm. life, which I think is what led me to physics. Um, I, I think I initially applied wanting to be an economics um, and math major, which is interesting because I think a lot about kind of economics in the context of the carbon pricing work. I do with CCL. Um, so I kind of come back a little to, to that, but I, I shifted to wanting to be pre-med and within the pre-med scope, I was like, well, I'll take physics first. Cause like, that's the subject I'm most comfortable with. I was always pretty mathy in high school and I took one physics class and I was like, okay, done with the pre-med idea. Uh, we're <laughs> just going to do, we're just going to do this. And I also actually, I majored in English as another, as a second major um and that was the same story i took an english class it was really the courses i took my freshman year i lucked into two professors who i would just uh repeatedly take courses with throughout mm-hmm. throughout my time at Bowdoin. and that was uh that kind of set my academic trajectory and coming out of undergrad i was like i really uh am eager to take physics to the next level and see what there is out there uh, or fail to see what there is out there in the case of fruitlessly looking for dark matter um and that's that's kind of how I got into grad school, Ryan. Mm-hmm. So it's funny you say that too about how your first classes in college really set the tone for your experience because not a lot of people know this, but I actually I went into college like I want to be a political science major. I always mm-hmm. wanted to be a lawyer. I kind of knew I wanted to do environmental law at some point, um, but I was like I want to be a judge. That was the whole thing. Oh, interesting. Um, and then I took this geology class about the ocean and I was, I was like hooked on geology and I was a geology major for almost two years. And then I realized I had to take organic chemistry, mm, yeah, which was not going to happen. I could um, never take that. If Sounds I wanted terrible. to stay yeah. in college, <laughs> I <didn't laughs> fail out. Uh, so I ended up like, designing my own major to be environmental policy. So I kind of had the political science and I kind of had, the science part of it, which was really nice. Um, but it's true. Like it, it, I think especially union where I went had also had a very yeah. similar, like we want you to try everything, think creatively, uh, you know, obviously there's a core curriculum, but, but do something different. And I also, that was really where I had the opportunity to try a ton of things. And I was placed as an intern at the nature conservancy, which is very, very similar to, um, CCL, but, yeah, a, a little different in the sense that it's very liberal. Uh, it's also I was working a lot with politicians and lobbying, and and so I'd love to hear more about kind of what is CCL and what should people know, and where does it kind of fall in the spectrum of other environmental organizations. Yeah, oh, these are all such great questions. Um, and we have to compare lobbying experiences. So I'm really, I've, I've had it from the CCL side and I've not lobbied with another uh, climate organization. And I'd be really curious to know how the Nature Conservancy trained you guys and 
Uh, but anyway, so, so what CCL is, Citizens Climate Lobby, um, we're a nonprofit, uh, nonpartisan organization, um, <clears throat> and we're concerned with finding uh, large-scale solutions to climate change. Um, now, that said, there's a few things that set us apart, uh, or a few things that make us unique. Um, one is that we try to keep a very singular focus. Um, so we get criticism for this, we get praised for this, but uh, many of the people who are in CCL, when we're wearing our CCL hats, uh, we have a firm belief that this is an approach worth running as an experiment, worth trying to see if we can get something across the finish line. So we only focus on really just one policy at a time. Um, and that is so that we bring CCL's kind of volunteer force of, it's now almost 200,000 registered supporters to bear on just a single legislative objective to see if just mounting that kind of support single-mindedly year-round, uh, single-mindedly in a good way, <laughs> year-round for, for a policy is, is enough to get it across the finish line. Um, we focus only at the national level. Uh, there's lots of good work to be done uh, with sustainability on the personal level, with uh, policy um, on the local or the, the state or the regional level, but there's, there's obviously got to be a national component to climate solutions. So that's where CCL's focus is. And the last thing is, uh, we're relative to, to kind of other grassroots climate organizations, um, pr pretty bipartisan. Um, so, you know, climate, it's no secret, is an issue that has historically uh, skewed left of political center. And there are studies, there was a study that uh, came out in recently uh, that looked at uh, major pieces of legislation passed between the late 70s and the 2000s. And what they found was that virtually no major legislation, they looked at like the 200 something biggest bills, got mm -hmm. through without significant bipartisan support. Um, and so we figured there needs to be somebody in the climate space who's really working towards bringing both parties together around a solution that you know stakeholders in each can, can agree upon. And that's not trivial, um, but that's what CCL tries to do. So we focus on a, a carbon pricing policy which, which doesn't grow government revenue um, and which gives the money back to the people and that's uh, and we do that primarily, well, well, at least in large part through the direct lobbying of Congress, um, which is a lot of what I do. So it's funny how you also phrase it as carbon pricing, because at least what I've studied in the past is we've talked a lot about carbon tax. And the word carbon tax is really scary. And politicians do not want to use the word tax. They've actually don't get voted for whatever role that they're vying for because of the word tax. People immediately assume it's going to cost them more money. Uh, it's something bad. Um, I think one great example is Al Gore back when he uh, was a presidential candidate. It's a good idea, obviously, but from a implementation standpoint, it's very tricky. So I think how I'd love you for you to break down carbon pricing exactly. Like what does it mean for people that really don't know? Um, and how is it unique to CCL? Because hmm. a lot of people talk about it. Like, do they put it on the, do we put a carbon tax or, or carbon pricing on industry who is responsible for, most of pollution or do we put it on products that we buy almost like a plastic bottle you know when you buy plastic cans you get that that five cent deposit yeah. that kind of thing 
Yeah. Um, so actually, so the, the, just to make a, to, to put a bookmark in it, the carbon pricing versus carbon tax versus carbon fee, um, the wording is definitely, as you say, something that people try to be very cognizant around. Um, it's actually incidental that I used carbon pricing there, which can actually mean a broader thing than just carbon tax. It can also include cap and trade, um, which is a mm -hmm. more confusing alternative. Um, to also carbon. one that's also compared to carbon taxing. It's yes. usually like, yes. do we do cap and trade or carbon tax? It's, it's never together. Yeah, they, they, in theory, can be compatible. There's a book called The Case for a Carbon Tax by an economist named Shi Ling Su, who makes the point that there's nothing in these policies that uh, makes them not compatible with one another in a, in a legislative setup. But in practice, politically, it's, it's hard to push for both at once. Um, but I, I tend to think that if this ever really gets close to being passed, the opponents of carbon pricing or of, of a carbon tax will be very quick to call it a tax, which is probably, you're right to point out, the most negative terminology that can mm -hmm. be thrown at it because of its connotations and kind of American politics. And I think we have to be ready to at least mount a defense of that. Um, and, and readiness looks like having the, having the major stakeholders, the politicians really convinced that this is something worth doing um, because it benefits America. Um, but that's a, that's a sell that we have to make over time and it's a sell that we have to make you know, convincingly. Um, so our carbon tax um, is a price placed on the extraction of fossil fuels. So primarily uh, coal, uh, oil, and natural gas near the point of extraction. And like you say, you can place it further downstream. You could just place it at the supermarket uh, where you sell it. But the benefit of placing it further upstream, well, there's two benefits. One is that uh, you, you have to apply it to very few entities. Um, so there's, it turns out there's only a few hundred coal mines in the United States. There's not that many oil and gas refineries. Um, and getting fewer and fewer. <laughs> yeah, getting fewer and fewer. Um, and so you, you apply it to like 1,500 entities. Um, and they will pass on the costs to the next stage of production, to the stage after that, to the stage after that, all the way through all the middlemen and to the consumer. Um, and this is a common complaint about carbon taxes. It's like, wait, individual people didn't make kind of the, the large scale decisions to, to uh, have a change in climate. Why are you passing on most, not all, some of it kind of gets absorbed and eaten along the way, um, but why are you passing on most of the cost to consumers? And the answer, there, there's kind of, there's an, there's an answer for why you're doing that, and then there's an answer for what you do about it. Mm -hmm. um, and the answer for why you're doing it is that other approaches that maybe to, to the naive eye look like they're not doing this are actually doing this also. So if you, for example, are like, I want to mitigate climate change by having fuel economy standards on cars. And so instead of letting automobile makers make whatever they think is kind of economically most suitable, not considering the adverse effects of climate change, let's say you have to have 50 mile per, uh, per gallon cars. All of the car makers will be like, okay, we'll do it, but the cars are going to cost a lot more. They'll charge a, they'll charge or a bit more. They'll charge a bit more. And that money will just get, because all cars, all new cars now have that surcharge on them everybody will pay that extra money. And so regulatory approaches generically um, tend to have the same feature. Uh, they just don't advertise it, which politically can be good, but kind of from an honest perspective of wanting to look out for the poor, there's not a, there's not a kind of a priori better thing you can do. Um, in fact, economists have come out and said that a carbon tax is probably the most economically efficient way we know of uh, to, to kind of have the least costs added. Um, by mitigating climate change. Still, not good that you're passing the cost on to poorer folk. So CCL does a second thing, which is 
a simple thing. We take all the proceeds we raise, we give them back to everyone uniformly. Um, we call that a dividend. And poor and middle income people almost always get more in the dividend back, um, especially poorer folk, than they pay in the fee. So if your complaint about a carbon tax is that you don't like that it, it economically hurts poorer folk, you will really like our carbon tax because it actually tends to help poorer folk because it's a, we call it a fee and dividend or a tax and dividend approach. So, and I really kind of want to get into this conversation a little bit, just because a lot of the work that I do with clients is understanding consumerism and understanding how people buy and how to market it so people will buy it specifically for green products. And I mean, it's great for green products because it gives them a leg up because they won't have a fee attached to them and it will honestly kind of level the playing field yeah. in terms of costs for things where if someone's making a decision between a green product and a conventional, you know, product, let's, let's give an example of a toothbrush, like a bamboo toothbrush versus a plastic toothbrush. They could be the same price versus someone being like, well, I'm not going to pay an additional $3 to this bamboo toothbrush because it's a toothbrush. The point is yeah. that it's going to end up in a landfill um, and the bamboo one will, you can like take it apart and use it in your garden or it will decompose. Um, but I think what's interesting is when you're understanding consumers and how they buy things, um, how responsible are we? You know, if there's all we have, we had this discussion in grad school and it was like, is it really, it's, it's kind of the consumer's fault a little bit to buy products that are petroleum based. It's sort of supply and demand. If they're not buying it, then the oil companies won't make as much oil and therefore yep. we'll have less emissions and all that stuff. But at the same time, a lot of people don't know better. A lot of yep. people yep. just are buying the same thing that they've always bought and they're not thinking about where it's going, but is ignorance something that you should pay for? I mean, Ooh. possible. I mean, so I think what the, like, this is, this is such an interesting topic because like, you know, like you say, currently in kind of the, the current environment of the unleveled playing field, um, I would phrase it, uh, use two phrasings. I would use the second one. The level playing field makes a lot of sense to me. A leg up is like the leg was already down to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, so this is just kind of restoring uh, things to where they were. But like, you know, in the current environment without a carbon price, um, people, people buy things that cause pollution unknowingly most of the time or not, you know, not having been kind of fully educated or briefed on what the consequences are and not in a position in their everyday lives to just make the, the thousand separate decisions per day uh, that, would, that would enable this. And it's going to require, even with a carbon tax, a lot of smart people in advertising and a lot of smart cultural influencers to, to change a culture around uh, uh, the, the kind of the, the way we the way we buy and use all our products and, and kind of dispose of them without thought. But what the carbon tax does is it sets the backdrop for that. So the carbon tax is kind of the, the thing you can do, the one thing you can do that has the, the least kind of um, central planneriness to it, uh, or, or it requires the least kind of intel the, the fewest number of intelligent people to come in and have brilliant ideas on top of it. Um, because the carbon tax just takes that whole playing field where, where people in your line of work are constantly fighting an uphill battle to say, well, you actually want to use this, even though you have to pay more. And like, how do you get people's attention in the first place to tell them that? And then what if they, you know, but if you just put the price signal there, um, 
uh, and you say, well, okay, now this is going to cost not infinitely more. You're still allowed to buy it, but it's going to cost $2 more than it cost before because we used a lot of energy to produce it. And that energy came from coal plants um, or some such. That's going to change. That's going to make your work a lot easier, <laughs> frankly. You honestly just reminded me honest, of the plastic bag fee. <clears throat> because if you think about when you go to the grocery store and Connecticut saw an immediate change in behavior and how people like people will just carry stuff out um, instead of getting those plastic bags because now they're paying for something they don't want. No, no one really like wants plastic bags. In fact, most people have a plastic bag of plastic bags somewhere in their house. I mean, every, everyone does. Yeah. Um, and so people were immediately like, well, I'm not going to pay for this piece of junk essentially. And it just reminded me as well of, you know, a lot of people order things online and I do too. I order things consigned online a lot and you're not really thinking about how much that package is traveling. And I think what's great about consigned versus not consigned is when you get that product, it's usually not wrapped in plastic. You know, I don't know if during the holidays you got any gifts and everything <laughs> or like everything you ordered any kind of gear is like wrapped in like this plastic film and no one wants this plastic film. And if we, this plastic bag fee was also associated with this like online shopping as a fee, because every single one of these items is in a plastic bag, maybe people would be pushing back being like, well, don't pack our stuff in plastic bags. We don't want it. And that's like where I'm talking about like that cultural shift of when you start adding costs to things, people will very quickly be like, oh no, I don't want to pay for this. So don't do it. Yeah. I don't care yeah. how it affects quality or, or fine. And I think the trick is how do you, how do you keep quality and get people kind of what they want without having all this protective packaging? Um, it, it's tricky, but that's really where culture, culture unfortunately lies with where the money is. And that's how yeah. you change. Yeah, that's a, um, and I, I think, you know, the, the nice thing about the tax as opposed to kind of a regulatory approach that says, you shall do this, you shall not do this, is that if you still really, you know, I mean, we're obviously not putting a tax on, on plastic bags, uh, we're, uh, per se with ours, but, but with, to use the example of a plastic bag tax, if you still really want the plastic bag, um, maybe you need to pick up dog poop that afternoon, um, <laughs> and a plastic bag is the tool for the job. Uh, that's, you know, you can still pay for it for 10 cents. Mm -hmm. um, so you're, you're just changing the price incentives to reflect the external cost imposed upon society. You're not uh, being necessarily overly aggressive with it or, or being prescriptive about, you know, uh, what, what people need to do. You're just saying that, look, you can still have this thing, but in practice, you change the cost of it. And, you know, there's a 10 cent bag fee in Boulder, and I have just notice that my own behavior, I just have this aversion to paying it. Why am I throwing dimes away? Um, mm -hmm. Like I just, it just feels like I've never really given serious thought to, to how much it is and how, like if I just ignored kind of that my whole career here, how much I would have paid. And I'm also, I also try to be sustainable in my life where I can. And that seems like an easy place to start. Um, but it's just like this, this aversion I have to just throwing away extra money on grocery bills. Um, you know, it's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And 
you know, there's like this meme that's out there where uh, it shows people like carrying 20 plastic bags. Cause they're like, I just want to take one trip. Like I don't want to take more than one trip from my car to the <laughs> kitchen, like with all their groceries. And now it's like, because you don't have bags or you're going to be using reusable bags. And I know in the Philippines, they put a tax across the country where they're banning plastic bags uh, mm. nationally. Oh, interesting. And so there's yeah, so that's the other approach yeah. of like people like, bringing in like these crazy different kinds of items to kind of carry their groceries in some way, whether it's like a suitcase or a hamper or whatever they can find that is useful for them. And, and I would love for people to be walking out of target with, um, with their suitcase full of their home goods. That'd be so funny. Um, yeah. And I would, yeah, I would love for target to be being powered on wind power. <laughs> and yeah. I think this is, this is what, you know, price mechanisms like carbon pricing can ultimately get you uh, if implemented. And I think, and it, it seems like we got a little bit off track to some listeners, <laughs> but I promise you it's all really connected. I think the plastic bag is just an example of how pricing matters in terms of consumer decisions. And when you add this type of carbon pricing to reflect the actual cost of a product's supply chain and how it impacts the environment, that will affect how consumers will buy things, mm. hopefully. hopefully. Yeah. yeah. So how does right. that... Um, how does that work when you're trying to make this type of policy in government, whether it's a plastic bag tax or a fee versus a, a carbon pricing, how does that, what's the process? I mean, I know everyone saw Legally Blonde too and saw how you can of course. dog um, protect dogs and animals from beauty testing. But for carbon tax or carbon pricing, what, what is that process? Is it the same? Um, oh, is it the same as Legally Blonde too? I'll have to get back <laughs> to you on that. <laughs> I'll tell you what it looked like for us and you tell me if it's the same. Okay. Um, so what we did is Citizens Climate Lobby some years ago had a policy proposal drafted um, for a carbon fee with a dividend, essentially the policy I talked about. And um, we said, what are our strengths? Where can we, what levers of political power can we pull? Well, we don't have a ton of money. Um, we currently run on a higher budget than ever. And it's, it's only about 5 million a year, which for like a large lobbying organization that wants to really change uh, energy policy in America is, is modest. Um, and we said, okay, our strengths are our people. Um, we have uh, a very large number of people. Many of them are, are, are quite technically competent, uh, quite good at, at, some as, at some aspect of kind of CCO's portfolio of activities. So we have people that are, are natural writers who like to, to write opinion pieces. We have people that like to go out and, and uh, give talks at places. We have people that like to talk to congressmen behind closed doors, um, but just all citizen volunteers. And we said, well, one thing we can do is we can get in every congressional office uh, kind of at once, which, you know, even if you're a very, you know, even if you have the best lobbyist in the world, um, there are 535 congressional offices in Washington, D.C. That's more than days in the year. So it's hard to get your super lobbyist into every one, but we can get our volunteers into every lobbyist, every office in Washington uh, twice a year. We, uh, you know, before, before we just start angering the, the congressmen <laughs> that we're just taking up every day of their, of their time. So we would go in June and November um, twice a year and just have about 500 lobby meetings. 
but but so we would we would go in and do that and we would talk to even the people who are you know perfectly on our side uh, and that we just want to remind that we're here and we would talk to even the people that disagree with us vehemently and want to see us you know uh, go somewhere else and and enjoy our enjoy our time doing doing something different and over time um, we built trust with the congressional offices um, uh, Democrat and Republican and even offices that don't agree with us tell us they're happy to see us and that's not something you always get uh, as a lobbyist for a climate group um, going into the halls of power in DC. And we uh, would, would always talk to them about this policy. We would talk to them about minor other things on the side if there was something going on climate related that the constituents were interested in. We'd always try to bring constituents into the office. We'd always try to bring Republicans into Republican offices, Democrats into Democratic offices, uh, so that they were connecting on values um, that extended even a little beyond the kind of the immediate climate sphere. And then in 2018, like, you know, we had had this policy sitting there and it was, you know, for anyone who wants to introduce it, but with one stipulation, um, we said we weren't interested in supporting it if it didn't have at least one Democrat and one Republican. Um, <clears throat> so we actually, we weren't going to, <clears throat> we weren't going to back our own policy if it didn't have bipartisan support. That's how serious we were about mm -hmm. that. And in 2018, the bill was introduced with two Democrats, three Democrats and two Republicans. Um, and then it was introduced in the Senate immediately after by Chris Coons, Democrat of Delaware, and Jeff Flake, Republican of Arizona. And Flake is since no longer in the Senate, so there's not a Republican right now there. So we're, we're waiting uh, for, for another eager person to reintroduce it there. Um, but it's been reintroduced in the House in the new Congress um, with it was the original co-sponsors were Francis Rooney, who's a Republican of Florida, and Ted Deutsch, who's a Democrat of Florida, and a lot of other Democrats have signed on since. Um, and that's, that's kind of how we got the bill there. Then there's a lot that has to happen to get it passed. So um, it's in committees right now. Committees have a lot of power uh, to obstruct or to facilitate or to critique in a helpful way bills. And CCL has really specific strategies around making sure that a lot of our bills co-sponsors and a lot of people who are really well educated on the bill are the people on the committees that have oversight over it. So it's in ways and means foreign affairs and energy and commerce right now. Um, and there's not a Senate bill. Now we're just working, now we're kind of back in the building congressional support phase, even while the bill is kind of in Congress uh, waiting its turn. Mm -hmm. So kind of like Lily Blonde too. No, uh, I think what a lot of people <laughs> don't realize, actually you do learn this in Lily Blonde too. Um, <laughs> the partnerships of the people sponsoring your bill, if they even have roles in committees are really important and what role that is. And certain committees are more powerful than other committees. Uh, and I learned this back when I was in high school, I was on the first congressional youth cabinet in the United States with Congressman John Larson, who's a Democrat. But it was cool to like be a kid and actually be able to talk about policies, any kind of bill that we wanted to introduce um, has, he would teach us basically about how you really need to have certain kinds of sponsors, but like some people that are sponsors can pull supporters because they have other bills that they want to pass and they want, it's like they all have favors and they need, they want to re people to return their favors. And it's a very messy process. And that's why it takes so long. Cause some people kind of hold on to their favors really tight and they're like, well, I'm not going to ask for a favor until the timing is right. And it's just very interesting. 
Yeah, no, that's what I mean. A lot of people, you know, are fond of saying we need to act on climate now. And I'm like, well, then you better get in the halls of Congress because like we got to get started. <laughs> yeah, it takes a long time, you know, even in the best of cases to get something through there. Um, and, you know, absent a total change in our system of government, which works out smoothly and seamlessly and allows us to pass policy that is good for the climate without any adverse consequences, uh, working through the current governmental system seems like an approach that that is, uh, in my view, likely to succeed um, if done persistently enough and by enough uh, competent and, and um, thoughtful people. Well, I think what's interesting, and I'm not sure if some of these policymakers are thinking about this, but think about, I mean, they all kind of want power in some way, but think about if you were a champion of some kind of climate legislation, what that would do for your career, essentially, and the media and the attention that that person mm -hmm. would get if they got something passed. I mean, that would be historical. And so it's just kind of interesting to me that, or maybe there's just a lot of different bills out there that are being written so what was your experience? So I'm curious, like, so Citizens Climate Lobby is certainly, I would have to guess, one of the largest in terms of the sheer number of, of people we send into congressional yeah. offices, or not just number of volunteers, but how many of them get time in D.C. in congressional offices. But I think the Nature Conservancy is a much bigger and, and more well-established, uh, has just been around for a long time uh, doing doing this work organization. What was your experience lobbying for them? Um, so... Before I jump into my experience, I just want to uh, give a little shout out to one of our sponsors. Um, Dan, have you have you heard of the, the Pella phone case? I have not. Um, tell me about it. Yeah, so I actually heard about Pella years ago. Every single one of my phones, I mean, I've only had two phones since I, I like really hold on to my technology. All two of your phones? All two of my phones in the past four years, um, I've had Pella, a Pella phone case on it. And basically the brand, I reached out to the brand to sponsor the podcast because I'm just a really big fan of the work that they're doing. Um, they basically create phone cases that are completely compostable. They're made out of a waste uh, plant byproduct and they just do a lot of really good work and they're a lot of their different cases go to different environmental organizations that they're trying to uphold and um, and it also just protects your phone really well and it looks good people always ask about it whenever I carry it around so well, you've picked the right person to pitch it to, because uh, I have a, I have this broken OtterBox right now, which has just failed me. Um, and I've so I, I swear I did not break this in preparation for the podcast. <laughs> uh, it's just for, for viewers who are watching on, on the YouTube, uh, you'll be able to see that there's just this flimsy bit that's falling off the back where, you know, admittedly, in, in, in defense of OtterBox, I probably dropped this phone uh, one maybe 200 times um and uh you know but it broke I, I, when you're an active person and you do a lot of things you need a case that can really kind of be there for you and and protect your stuff and i think whether you're hiking or camping or biking i think i i'm like a super active person i've dropped my phone on the treadmill a ton of times and i've and i don't even have a phone screen protect i got like a screen protector on this thing like I've never had a phone screen protector and I've never cracked my screen. Knock on wood. I say that and tomorrow just watch. So yeah, I mean, and Dan, if you're, 
I know you're in the market. So if you want to get a Pella case, there is, I have a link that I'll attach to the description of the podcast and I'll also send to you uh, where you do get a discount on their website. And I think you can also apply the discount to Amazon because they do sell their products on Amazon. So then you can get Amazon prime delivery. Um, but it's a great product. I love it. And they're coming out with, they just came out with like sunglasses. I'm excited for the new stuff that they come out with. I hope maybe they'll come out with an Apple watch band because I really need one. Um, okay. So getting back into the podcast and sort of my experience with lobbying. Well, I also think I kind of had a leg up just use that phrase again, uh, because I had experience with Congressman John Larson as a high schooler. Basically I worked with the, the lobbyist group in Albany and was part of organizing one of the largest, the Earth Lobby Day in, I think it was 2015. And I think what's really unique or different about the Nature Conservancy is they're not just about their own work. They're, whenever they advocate for funding, and in this case, it was about the real estate tax change that Governor, I think it was Governor Cuomo at the time, I think what he had done was, so when you move to New York, New York, whether you buy a house or you buy a building or whatever, the tax that you pay on that real estate, when you make that sale, goes to the green fund. And what basically Governor Cuomo, and that green fund goes to, you know, any organization in New York that, uh, want, is doing any kind of work at all. And it kind of gets distributed uh, to whatever projects they're working on. And basically Governor Cuomo at the time had, hadn't really thought it through and decided to eliminate that relationship of the green fund with the real estate tax. And basically the lobbying was about getting that switched and making sure that not only the nature conservancy got the funding that they needed to move forward, but the Nature Conservancy funds a lot of grassroots organizations um, to doing cleanups, doing education all over the state of New York. And again, like this was very New York based. There's Nature Conservancy locations all over the country and they focus on their areas of need. And I'm sure there's like a national level as well. Um, it's a very complex organization, but I think in my experience, I was just cold emailing these uh, congressmen and women in New York and asking just for time to sit down on that particular day. And we would just sit down, we'd maybe have a 20 minute conversation with them about what we thought was most important. But of course, I think what's tricky about lobbying conversations is you don't want to just law, you just want, you don't want to jump into the ask immediately. You got to kind of, yeah. You kind of kind of be like, you know, how's it going? You don't want to take too much time though, because you have to be somehow friendly and also concise at the same time. You want to build that relationship. You don't just want to immediately go for the ask. Um, you, and you also want to know what they're, you have to do a lot of research beforehand on that person and figure out what do they like to do? Do they, do they go hiking with their family? Do they post pictures, um, camping? What's important to them? And then somehow make that conversation into, oh, you, you know, we just saw that you went hiking with your family. How did you like that? You know, we want to protect these spaces so that you can have them forever with your grandkids and your great grandkids and, and, and have that tradition live on and 
And then you, you kind of bring it back to, to them and, and the people and why it matters and how it's not just some irrelevant issue. It, it affects everybody in each way and including them. So that was really our conversations. And it, and I think maybe it taught me net looking back now, it probably was one of my first experiences in like really networking and really understanding, like, how do I have mm. effective conversations? Um, not to get what I want. Cause that's not really, <laughs> it's more just like, how do you educate someone in a, in a concise way that will matter? Yeah. No, I mean, lobbying is intrinsically, unless you're, unless you're lobbying for something very narrow and selfish, you're, you're lobbying for it because you genuinely think, uh, especially as a citizen who's kind of doing this on your own time, that this is a policy that's going to be good for, for everyone, yourself included and the congressman included and the other constituents included. Um, a lot of that sounds, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot that sounds very familiar to me there, kind of knowing who you're talking to and including knowing their staff. And this is where kind of, this is where part of CCL's laser focus uh, pays dividends for us um, on the lobbying front. Because each congressman, each of the 535 uh, congressional offices, um, there's a liaison for CCL associated with them. So there's one person whose job it is to be the point person for that office. And so the offices are always talking to the same person. And so they have continuity on, on their side in terms of like, oh, it's not going to be, you know, it's going to it's the same person we spoke to last time. Um, different people might show up at the lobby meetings, often including the liaison, but the liaison ha handles all of it and handles the strategy. Mm -hmm. um, so he, the, he or she has an overarching view of the trajectory that office has taken. And, you know, uh, often before an a lobby meeting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And CCL keeps very careful notes for all of our lobby meetings. So we'll have meetings with an office going back many, many years, maybe 10 years or so. Um, and I've gotten to, you know, I can't share the contents of these notes because CCL respects the confidentiality very greatly. But it's amazing to read them when you have a lobby meeting coming up with, with a, a congressman. And even just to, you know, often you meet with the same aide, often it's the legislative director, or the energy aide over and over again. And to see the trajectories um, these people take, because, you know, we're a group that, it's like we're, you know, from a, from if, if we weren't in the business of trying to accomplish something political, it'd be a fascinating study, a longitudinal study of how, of how the kind of attitudes of, of Congress people and their aides would evolve when being talked to about the same bill year after year after year. Um, and a lot of the development I've seen, which just predates my involvement in CCL by a lot, is, is very positive. So it's, it's actually, I always, I always take a lot of pleasure from reading kind of the, the briefings um, on what office we're going into that CCL is able to provide. But yeah, most pertinent to kind of our lobbying now um, is CCL is trying something new this year. So we're having, we've always had two lobby days a year and our organization has grown enough and we have a big enough conservative membership now. Um, and that's the space in CCL that I'm involved in where we're having our first ever conservative only lobby day. So this is in early February and uh, 80 or so of our volunteers, uh, I think a bit more actually are going out to Washington, D.C., and we're going to meet with just the Republican offices on the Hill um, and connect with them from constituents who aren't there to, to yell at them or say, we're going to vote you out, um, but that are there to, to, you know, get the most honest assessment possible of their genuine concerns and see and see if there's not room for a conversation um, with with more of those offices than we already have uh, fully like, you know, on board with this. Um, so 
that conservative lobby day is something that uh, listeners should maybe stay tuned for. I, I hope it will it will have the desired effect um, on these offices and on ourselves. Yeah, that's actually really uh, great to point out because I do think a lot of our listeners are in the New York, New Jersey, and even some in the DC area. So if they're interested in, if someone wanted to go participate, how would they, how would they go do that? Is there so for, a sign up or? Oh, that's a great question. So what I would, there's, first of all, there's always local chapters of Citizens Climate Lobby near people. We have over 550 chapters worldwide. The vast majority of them are in the US and Canada. And so start by joining your local chapter. And lobbying sounds like this big intimidating task and it kind of is uh, the first time you go into the office, but you're always with people who know what they're doing and who've done it before. And this lobby day is a little late to sign up for. Um, and it's, it's also specific to one demographic, but our next big one is in June. Um, so if you join Citizens Climate Lobby now or in the next few months, or even if you just join it, um, you know, closer to June, um, I really encourage people to, to, um, get involved with CCL. And, and if you do, don't be afraid to come to our June lobby day. We have a two day conference beforehand, which includes a lot of trainings on how to lobby. And then we send you well prepared with people who, who are, you know, with a spectrum of kind of expertise uh, into the congressional offices. And that's uh, the June lobby day is the big one. Yeah. Right. And I think I'm really glad that you have, you know, have been on the podcast and, and kind of sharing your story because it resonates with me only because I've had a lot of experience in this area in the past, which actually a lot of people on this podcast don't even know about. Um, so you guys got to hear a little bit about that, but I just think that there are people that are kind of looking for where to, to put some of their time and, and energy because it's something they're really passionate about. And I think government can be very intimidating, but if you have that community of people around you, that's kind of like, it's okay. Like we're going to take your hand and like walk you through this step-by-step. Step. That is a lot easier. I think trying anything new is very scary. So I think mm -hmm. this is a, it's a good opportunity for those that are kind of interested in and dipping their toe in and seeing if it's something they're interested in. Um, and speaking of just being a sustainability champion, I think, you know, it sounds like, you know, you've been in this field for a little while now and, and, you also, we've talked about how you live in Boulder and you said you've tried to kind of like live a more sustainable life since you started getting involved. Do you do anything yourself that like you're really committed to in terms of like you always have to have a reusable cup or um, like what's your biggest or even do you have a sustainability goal for 2020? So yeah, a few thoughts there. I've been trying to fly less. Um, Cause I, you know, I think it's great to use, you know, reusable cups and all that, but I think the real, like, I, I, I always kind of try to ground myself in the numbers, um, and, and take a sober look at, even if I don't want to hear it, what's the thing that I'm doing that actually has the biggest impact. Um, and flying is like of the things I do that I'm willing to entertain doing considerably less of one of the bigger ones. So that's, that's a thing where, uh, from kind of where I'm trying to, to reduce my own carbon footprint. But, but frankly, like even a version of me that doesn't fly. Um, and I, I always do use reusable cups when I, when I, you know, go get my coffee and even a, even a version of me that does all that is still living a, a carbon footprint that is not sustainable. Um, Cause I think the politics is orders of magnitude uh, more important. I don't think there's a comparison to be made 
um, if you're just going to focus a lot of effort on one thing. Um, you know, if you if you're the person that helps push the policy over over the line that impacts the 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 carbon footprints of 300 million people, um, and and you know you might say, well, that's impossible. That's really hard politically. But actually, you know, a few thousand CCL volunteers, which are you know that's that's the number we sent to Washington this each year, have already delivered for us the most co-sponsored piece of carbon pricing legislation in the history of this country. And like, uh, so my sustainability goal is to. Uh, you know, reduce air travel, but keep in mind that my main goals uh, that I will achieve above and beyond kind of the, the goals of my sustainability wildest dreams by being the most effective person I can in policy spaces. Uh, how's that for a non-answer? That's answer? a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, of course, I'm going to get ask you the flip side and sort of do you do anything? And I know you kind of mentioned flying, but is there anything else that you do on your regular basis that you kind of makes you feel like a sustainability hypocrite? Oh yeah. I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't, and I, I, I try not to, I, I don't pretend to not be, um, you know, I try to, I try to keep the heat in my house low, but sometimes I'm just like, ah, oh, it would be nice if it were, <laughs> were uh, like summer here in winter in Colorado. <laughs> um, and so, you know, uh, I think I think the question is, you know, given given like kind of the the level of my carbon footprint relative to just an average person's in the world, what are the what are the few activities I do that make me not a sustainability hypocrite? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, you know, it's tough to personal sustainability your way out of climate change. Yeah, um, yeah. but yeah. it doesn't mean people shouldn't try. Uh, I get the heat <laughs> thing a lot too because I. I some people run hot, and it's really good. You know, it's great for the environment for everyone who runs hot because they mm -hmm. it doesn't matter as much but i run really cold so mm -hmm. i really keep the heat at a pr pretty low and my, my family does too um but that just means i need more layers so then i'm like well i need flannels and sweatshirts and then it's just like well now i have stuff to keep me warm like i just got some slippers because i needed new slippers and it's like yeah, well yeah, i'm yeah. freezing like <laughs> I don't know. So it's like there's consumerism of stuff or energy. It's both energy. I mean, a product is versus heat. Yep. It's energy in different forms. I feel the heat very, very close to me. So, and then my last question that I like to ask, um, you know, you do live in a place where people are, you know, thinking about their impact. What do you see out there that really like is your sustainability pet peeve that like, like the other day I was on a train and a public transportation and uh, someone like threw their trash on the ground and I was like, yeah, I mean, I think actually being in Colorado, uh, there's, there's a real kind of, there's a shared attitude among people in Colorado um, that are, you know, the, the best natural resource we have in this, in this particular state um, is our, is our land and our just majestic uh, mountainscapes. Um, and it's part of the reason I moved here. Um, and so anybody who goes out and uses that land and leaves a permanent mark on it, um, whether by just leaving a ton of trash around, which, you know, I've seen in places before, um, really, like, that's sad to me. Um, it just, it makes me, it makes me think, like, you know, that they probably, they're probably not doing it out of maliciousness or anything, um, because who has a grudge against a, a landscape? Um, but there, it, it's, it's not, you know, I, I wish people... People wouldn't do that. And generally, it's, it's you know, uh, it's something that Coloradans are cognizant of and good at. And it makes me, it makes me grateful to live here because it's, it's great to advocate for kind of climate in a state where people get 
you know, that, that so much of what they love is grounded easier. in natural beauty. Yeah. yeah. It makes it a little easier. Yeah. Um, and you know, uh, that I'm fine with that cause it's hard enough to begin with. <laughs> so true. <laughs> yeah. So true. Um, yeah, I, I definitely understand that my, where I also live is very green. We live basically across the street from a giant nature preserve. My town is actually one of the largest towns in Connecticut not by population, just nearly by land size because of this nature reserve. Um, and we'll walk around and, and we'll pick up trash as we go and we hike because, and, and again, a lot of the times it's probably like fell out of someone's backpack. It's probably not intentional, though the guy on the train, that was intentional. Um, and it's just a reminder, we grew up learning not to litter, but for whatever reason, people still do and it's really bad for the animals and um so i i understand that yeah no it's uh the cost of not littering is not high um yeah. so don't litter guys and this is why you should all get pelophone cases because they're compostable <laughs> and you can plant them i'm just kidding don't be like me <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you so much again for taking the time to chat and reaching out and I think it's just like so interesting how we have a lot of similar experiences and kind of how you found the climate citizens lobby. I think that's what really makes your story so impactful is because you're just a regular person. You felt like you wanted to do more and, and now, and how long have you been with the citizens climate lobby now? Three years. Three uh, years. 2017 was when I started. Yeah. So. Wow. Uh, yeah. Um, that's awesome. And I think, yeah, your story is inspiring for anyone who's kind of interested in getting involved and, and doing more. And I think everyone now feels pressure to do something. And if lobbying and getting involved in government is, is what you feel like you're drawn to, like this is a great outlet. And if people want to reach out to you, is there a good way for people to contact you? Do you have Instagram? Do you have a, mm, uh, yep. a public uh, profile people can reach you at? Yeah, so people can reach me um, on Twitter um, uh, at Daniel Palkin. That's P as in pterodactyl, A-L-K-E-N. Um, and they can also reach... Uh, P as in pterodactyl? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't help myself. Uh, they can also reach the... Uh, for sure my favorite dinosaur. Um, they can also reach the Citizens Climate Lobby um, at cclusa.org. Um, they can read about our bill at energyinnovationact.org. Um, so those are the, the uh, for me, for the organization and for the policy we champion, so those are the three ways of reaching out I recommend. Um, or if you just Google Citizens Climate Lobby, um, there's almost certainly a chapter near you. Um, if there's not, you probably live somewhere way out there and very beautiful and you should be hiking right now. Uh, <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it, I love it. So guys, reach out to Dan. Um, Thanks again so much for, for coming on and kind of dropping your wisdom on us. And I hope everyone has a wonderful and warm rest of the week until, until next time. Thank you guys so much. And thank you for having me.